and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 91, recorded on February 3rd, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And it is a great week to be a Firefox user. Yeah, Firefox 65 has come out and it is all about privacy. Privacy really has turned into a bit of a buzzword, hasn't it? Especially recently after the uh, proposed changes by Google and Chromium. It seems like privacy for the web browser is the battlefield for 2019, and Firefox isn't going to be left out of that fight, Joe. Yeah, they've got a new set of redesigned controls to give you real granularity about how you protect yourself when you're browsing. This is a really sensible approach. So the default is standard. For anyone who wants to just set it and forget it, it's the default right now. You're good to go. And it really is the perfect setting for those of you who expect ultimate privacy when you open up their private browsing mode. But for the rest of us who want a little more, quote unquote, strict control, that's for people who want a bit more protection and don't mind if a couple of sites here and there break. This setting blocks all known trackers by Firefox, regardless of the privacy mode or not. But then if you like to kind of get down in the weeds, they also have now a custom mode. That's three different modes, Joe, for privacy. Well, it's always been the browser for the power user with the about config options and everything. And now with the privacy settings, you've got real control as a power user if you want it, or if you want to just go for the defaults, then that's pretty much fine for most people. So it kind of serves both types of users. Yeah, it's really not bad, is it? It's it's nice to see the three different options and to see them expand out this built-in set of options. Uh, but it's pretty generic and basic and not enough. It's really one of those feature sets it's good to see, but it's not enough to move the needle. That said, some of the things that they are working on for future versions of Firefox I think that kind of stuff could move the needle. Well, in the next version, 66, it looks like they're going to implement a feature that warns users about man-in-the-middle attacks. So again, it's all about privacy and security. Right. This is a very, very useful feature, especially for those of you on Windows. Starting with version 66, Firefox will let you know if, say, a rando antivirus product or malware, or maybe even your ISP is intercepting your HTTP and HTTPS traffic. They're building in a new style of air page into Firefox when it detects this kind of shenanigans. And the way this feature works is to show that visual, hey, you, user, your traffic is being intercepted. You need to look into the software on your computer or ask questions with your ISP. That is the kind of feature set that I don't really see Google all that compelled to introduce. Well, that's hopefully what's going to save Firefox and Mozilla here, because we all know that Chrome has just been absolutely eating up all the market share, and Firefox is way, way down now, almost insignificant in terms of percentage. But hopefully with features like this, they might be able to claw some of that market share back and become more relevant as people wake up to the reality that their data is actually worth something and they should be a bit more careful about who they give it to. All of that said, I can't help but take a bit of a downer note on this story because when I look at what Firefox is attempting to do, I'll give you an example. They've limited, like the limit is remarkable. It's like four or five extensions. When you consider all of the extensions available to Firefox, Mozilla has picked four or five that they are occasionally recommending to a subset of users. An example would be if you go to Facebook, 
Mozilla will recommend an extension to you called the Facebook container. This is one of the best things that has come out of Mozilla in the last five years. It completely isolates everything about Facebook to an isolated Firefox container. It can't track you across websites. It's contained to this specific environment. And yet, users are reacting very negatively. In fact, bug 15.23.701 has been filed in the last three days Essentially saying, you're advertising to me. You're giving me advertisements. And I think at the end of the day, what it represents is Mozilla has lost the trust of their users. And if they can't keep their existing user base happy, then how can they possibly hope to grow? That's a bit of a negative take on it, but I'm inclined to agree, unfortunately. But I don't know, maybe people who are the hardcore Firefox users at this point actually care about open source and software freedom and everything. And they're the ones who are going to go on Reddit, ironically, and complain about this stuff. Whereas maybe the people who read the mainstream headlines about Google doing evil things and Facebook doing evil things might then do a little bit of digging and discover Firefox and remember, oh, yeah, I used to use that before I switched to Chrome. And maybe, oh, right, this recommendation, that looks cool. So maybe the existing users might be a bit alienated, but the users that they will attract might find this good? I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive. and <laughs> Yeah, that's very optimistic for you, Joe, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all good in the hood if you are an HP user because I am extremely thrilled this week to say that LVFS is welcoming HP to the fold. Yeah, this is excellent news that I did somewhat see coming, but not this quickly. Because we've seen other major OEM signups with Linux vendor firmware service, but now HP is like the other behemoth. So almost all laptops now potentially are going to be updatable via the GUI when it comes to firmware. And that's got to be a good thing. So you did see this coming, huh? I got to be honest, I, I didn't. I mean, after System76 said, ah, no, not for us, I wasn't sure what direction this would go. But since then, we saw a doubling down from Dell. We saw... AMI get in the game, we've seen HP and even Lenovo get in the game. To me, it's like every time one of these new vendors comes along, it's a total unique delight. I am so thrilled because I guess I just don't expect it. Um, because like when I think of Linux computers, I don't think of HP. But the, you know, they're looking at they're looking at like the Z2, Z6, Z8, Z440 line. That's the kind of rigs they're targeting. Maybe even the Z840 uh, and more. Uh, okay, all right. It's starting to click with me, but I guess I just didn't see HP next. If you were going to ask me to make a prediction, say at the beginning of the year, I don't know if HP would have been on that list. Well, he likes to drop hints, Husey, about the various companies that he's in negotiations with and working with. And it obviously takes quite a while to make these things happen. And uh, just the speculation had been that it would be HP, so I was pleasantly surprised to see it. It'd be good if they could support more models, but I suppose you have to start somewhere. Reading his blog, though, for like a while now, you you get a real sense of pride in his work, which is completely understandable. And I hope he does feel a sense of pride because he's doing a huge service for Linux users. But <laughs> in that sense of pride, like he kind of can't help but give a little indication of what's coming next and in the blog post it's not even it's not even vague like it's pretty much in your face he says even seemingly unlikely companies like microsoft are still interested in shipping firmware on lvfs in the future 
does that mean we're about to get firmware updates for Surface Books on Linux? <laughs> what does that mean, Joe? Well, surely we'd have to get actual proper Linux support first before we got any firmware updates. <laughs> I when I read that, I'm thinking to myself, are we talking about Azure Sphere OS? <laughs> yeah, you never know. But something that people have actually been getting their hands on over the weekend at FOSDEM is new hardware from Pine64, including a tablet and an upgraded Pinebook Pro. Right, but the, the real story here is the freaking prices. I mean, if you want all your gadgets running pure Linux, then Pine64 has you covered. But if you don't have a lot of money to spend, well, then Pine64 has you covered. And the news coming out of Fosdem this year is really about the Pine tab, a 10-inch tablet with either Linux or BSD. Inside the Pine tab, you'll find a 64-bit system-on-a-chip ARM processor. It's a Cortex-A53 quad-core processor, a Mali 400 GPU, 2 gigabytes of DDR3 RAM, 16 gigabytes of eMMC storage built in, and 2-megapixel front camera, and a 5-megapixel rear shooter. All of that is behind a 10-inch LCD touchscreen, which is running about 720p for 80 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you do have to take that price with a bit of a pinch of salt. $79 might end up being more like 150 by the time you've paid for shipping and import duty and stuff. But it's still fairly cheap. But then it's a fairly low-res screen and things, so it's probably a fair price for it. And it is worth keeping in mind that the demo model that they've got at FOSDEM is running Android at the moment. But they have said that it is fairly similar specs-wise to the original Pinebook and there's plenty of distros and ROMs available for that. So in theory, they should work with minimal tweaking. So the software support should be there pretty much from day one. And I'm very tempted to get this. Yeah, but what do you think about that $20 keyboard? I think that looks pretty good. And the people I've spoken to at Fosdem say it's pretty solid as well. Really? Oh, okay. See, I was thinking 20 bucks, magnetic keyboard. There's no way they can deliver that. That, out of all of this, was the thing I was the most skeptical about. Well, yeah, I mean, for the price, obviously, it's not going to be the quality of a surface or whatever. You know, it's it, this is a budget device and you have to go into it with that in mind. But based on my Pinebook, that for a budget device feels relatively high end. I mean, it's plastic and everything, but it's solid plastic and doesn't creak and bend and everything. So, you know, I, I give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But this Pinebook Pro, now they're making some pretty hefty claims about that. Yeah, the Pinebook Pro is what I am actually excited about. And it's just anecdotally what I've heard the most from the audience from this week. I mean, the idea is a 14-inch 1080p IPS display with about 128 gigabytes of eMMC storage, 4 gigabytes of system RAM, and maybe the option of adding your own MVNE SSD drive. Plus, you get all the usual ports like USB-A, USB-C, and inside that sucker, a dual-core ARM processor, maybe a quad-core depending on the way the specs work out, and the whole thing comes together... For 200 bucks, that puts it that puts it below a Chromebook, Joe. Yeah, and it is the same processor that's used in a fair few Chromebooks as well. So in theory, you should get decent performance from it. Now, what piqued my interest towards the end of this part of their announcement was where they said that the Pinebooks that people already have might well be upgradable to this because it's very hackable, the Pinebook that I've got. You can open it up with like 10 screws or whatever, and they're just standard screws. And you can see all the boards right there, and it wouldn't be difficult to change the insides of this thing. And you've got the screen, the keyboard, touchpad, battery, and all the ports. 
And so in theory, you could put in the more powerful hardware and have an actual usable laptop because at the moment, it's not a daily driver and they make no bones about that. But they're saying that this Pinebook Pro would be daily driver worthy. In the Chromebook category, you know, you're not going to be compiling kernels on it in 10 minutes. It's a, you know, it's a, a fairly lightweight browsing machine, but the claim is that it would be good enough to do that. And so I had been tempted to sell my Pinebook and maybe get the tablet, but now I'm thinking maybe hang on and hopefully it'll be not that expensive to buy just the board to put inside my Pinebook and I could be off to the races. No kidding, right? Like how cool would it be if the part of the Pine brand was upgradability? I mean, it seems like such an obvious thing, but you can't name a single brand that's well-recognized that is known for the upgradability of its components and its laptops. That just doesn't exist. Yeah, well, these days you're lucky to get RAM slots you <laughs> yeah. know, rather than soldered RAM. Or disk, yeah. Yeah. And so if you could change the entire um, system on a chip and the whole basically motherboard of it very easily and relatively cheaply. Swap it out, just the whole board. <laughs> I think that'd be pretty great. Um, and to say nothing about the other rumors coming out of Fosdem, um, the one that I'm probably the most looking forward to is a $20 open source IP camera. I would be all about that. And then there's the one that I'm the most skeptical about, which is the $150 Linux smartphone with an unspecified screen size. <laughs> well, they do actually have working dev kits of that phone, which is more than you can say of purism at this stage. Oh, shots fired. Shots fired indeed. But, um, you know, and they're, they're being very modest about it. They're not, they're not making this big song and dance about the phone. They're kind of saying that we're working on it and, you know, here's a prototype and, you know, it's it's not this big grand product and that's kind of never been their style, has it? It's always been we're aimed at hackers and tinkerers and, you know, this is the phone that we're working on and it's going to be ready when it's ready rather than making firm promises and then not keeping them. It seems like a genuine, clear understanding of the actual marketplace and then you combine that with the same thing that I feel like other projects we've talked about in the same space, sort of primarily Plasma Mobile, where they come at it with a humbleness. This is where we're at today. You know, this is what we can offer today. And we think it's something that is unique to hackers. And we're trying to offer it at a competitive price point. We're not saying it's going to replace the iPhone or compete with the Pixel. But if you are in this particular market and you even know what these things mean, we have a product for you. And God bless them, Joe. Yeah, and they have the attitude of come and help us. This is an open source project. Come and help us hack on it. Yeah, I think that is the right approach because then it's not, oh, we're going to take over the world. We're going to fundamentally change the consumer landscape and alter cloud computing all in one swoop. It's, hey, we have something we think is appealing and we're going to iterate on it for years. And eventually we're going to get to something that we think is super competitive. In the meantime, help us make it better. Yeah, in the meantime, hackers are going to use it and have fun doing so. But I suppose the elephant in the room, whenever we're talking about any of these ARM-based systems, is the Raspberry Pi Foundation. And you and I have some predictions in the works, in play, as you might say, that could be affected by this next news story. But we're here to report the news as it is. It appears we will not see a Raspberry Pi 4, at least in 2019. Yeah, this is very disappointing to me because I would predicted this with great confidence that we'd see it this year. But... <laughs> Apparently not. In an interview with Tom's Hardware, Evan Upton has said that, no, it's not happening this year. It will be called the Raspberry Pi 4. It will be $35. 
and it will be more powerful and have more RAM. So it's most of what we thought, but it's just not going to be this year, which is going to disappoint quite a lot of people, I think. Well, not just other people. I mean, just you and me. Like, I was hoping that uh, we would have a super cheap Raspberry Pi, a $35 Raspberry Pi, and then like a $55 Raspberry Pi or so. Because the reality is, Joe, is $35 today isn't necessarily buying you what $35 bought you when the Raspberry Pi launched. And I think there's room in there for a more feature, maybe more memory, more processor, but more feature-rich Raspberry Pi. I've made this argument before, and reading this over at Tom's Hardware, I can see that Eben is totally in disagreement with me. Well, it does seem to be very much sticking to that $35 price and has done from the very beginning. But if you consider with inflation, that $35 doesn't actually go as far as it once did. It's roughly equivalent to about $38 in today's money. So if they're only selling it for $35 now, then it makes it very tricky for them to squeeze more and more performance out of a new model. I really recommend that people read this article because it, it made something really click for me. And and you just touched on it, Joe. It's they're they're really sticking to this thirty-five dollar price. Now, who knows? Maybe they'll have they'll have future products that are outside the core Raspberry Pi uh, product line that are of a completely different price, like they did with the zero. But reading this article, it seems like he's pretty committed to that thirty-five dollar price point. And I think that's important for the market because at their scale they are actually applying downward pressure on the prices for the overall component ecosystem. But it also, to me, resonates with something that the audience has been giving us as solid feedback anytime we talk about the Raspberry Pi, and that is simply summed up as there are really good competitive alternatives. And it seems to me that those competitive alternatives just got even more competitive with this. So both the audience is right, but at the same time, the Raspberry Pi is doing us an overall good by putting downward pressure on the prices of the entire market. Well, that's true, but we talked about Pi 64, and it feels like if the Raspberry Pi Foundation don't put out a new board this year, then Pi 64 might well start eating their lunch. I mean, there's a lot of other boards out there. Most of them are like Orange Pi, Banana Pi, that sort of thing. For my money, anything that has Pi in the name is a cheap ripoff and is just to be avoided. Now, that's maybe the wrong attitude to have, but it just feels like yeah. just cheap and nasty to me to put a pie in the name. Yep. Whereas Pine 64, what makes them sort of sets them apart is that they don't need to try and cash in. They just do what they're doing. And that makes me take them more seriously. I totally agree. And on top of that, you also have to figure Risk V is now a real player in the marketplace. And there are Risk V boards being built. And that is also competition for the Raspberry Pi. That is true, yeah. I saw a photo of a RISC-V board running Plasma Mobile at Fosdem. I mean, it's nowhere near the size of a Raspberry Pi, and it's going to be significantly more expensive at this stage, but that is coming. And we saw Raspberry Pi join the RISC-V Foundation, so maybe we'll see a RISC-V Pi at some stage. It seems very unlikely anytime soon. But maybe in this hackerboard space, the tide is turning and that crown is starting to slip slightly from Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi is a brand. That is a, that's a known quantity and it works in like the education space and, and, and business. And there is just, it's so well recognized that they, they have carved out a market for themselves now. And it, it is really their game to lose. But that's just an aside. I want to take a moment and, 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 Talk about some throwaway comments that Eben makes about USB-C. 
and maybe seen future Raspberry Pi devices with USB-C. And this is a quote. He says, there's some awkward decisions in the pin choices on the USB-C connector. In a kind of fairly rugged environment that people use the Pi in, if the connector gets twisted or if dust gets in it, you can end up exposing the high-speed differential pairs on that connector to rather high voltages. Overall, it sounded like he wasn't very happy with USB-C and was fairly happy with the ports they have on the Raspberry Pi devices right now. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he's voting for micro USB still. And he is an engineer with a lot of experience in this area, so you kind of have to trust him on that. He's obviously looked at it, and we all have hailed USB-C as the, the next big thing and the, the standard, but he's, he's made me question that now. He's doubted my faith in it. Same with me. I have been having doubts about USB-C for months now. Uh, behind the scenes, we've had just issues amongst the staff with different laptops that have come in-house that have different features on the USB-C ports, and you really have no idea of knowing what those ports can do unless you are intimately familiar with the entire spec of the laptop. And we've just been talking as a group, like, how is this going to work for average consumers? Well, average consumers are going to buy that Meizu Zero phone that's got no ports at all. So <laughs> I don't think they'll be worried. There you go. Problem solved. Meanwhile, back here on Earth, those of us who love a great media center fully under our control and, of course, is open source, are celebrating the release of Kodi 18. I tried this out and it doesn't look much different from 17. It's nowhere near the huge leap in skin that we had from 16 to 17, but there's quite a lot under the hood that's changed. You could probably easily be forgiven for missing the changes, to be honest, especially if you're like me, you're on the NVIDIA Shield, which I think is one of the best TV devices ever, and you have Kodi installed on it, which is one of the best media centers ever. This update kind of came along and it was just more good stuff, where the last one, like you said, was like this huge change in the way it looked and everything. But what you get under the hood is pretty noteworthy. In fact, what they took out is kind of noteworthy. Nearly half a million lines of code were removed and nearly half a million new lines of code were added. That's arbitrary to us. You know, half of that stuff could be hello world for all we know, but it's just kind of a big number. And it, it, it represents 10,000 commits to the project, which is 36 different individual open source contributors that are writing code to the main upstream Kodi project now. And it also represents just a, a ton of beer and wine and retro gaming for us Kodi users. This is something that I tried to try out, if that makes any sense, and didn't get very far. I didn't spend a huge amount of time on it. I didn't do much reading. I just tried to go in as the kind of new user, and it wasn't immediately obvious to me how to get the emulators working and get my ROMs loaded up and start playing Sonic. So I think this is more aimed at people who get down and dirty with hacking it, with extensions and everything. No, actually, all that checks out, Joe. I got to say, um, What's great about Kodi and also kind of not great about Kodi is all add-ons are essentially created equal. The Jupiter Broadcasting add-on that Rob Loach wrote for us like four or five years ago is like on par with some of this new stuff that is headline features. And that's cool and feels great from an independent content creator standpoint, but isn't really serving the project the best it could. And that would be one criticism I might have. Uh, but once you kind of live and learn Cody, you you kind of can figure things out. But even that said, 
um, it took the audience writing into me personally saying, hey, Chris, by the way, you can use Plex inside of Cody, do X, Y, Z, and it all works. It took like, it took about 20 of them writing me before it clicked how to actually <laughs> set all of that up. <laughs> well, also they've added DRM to this release and it's a similar situation. It is not straightforward to get Netflix and Amazon working in it. It's not out of the box support. It requires you to install add-ons and do a bit of hacking. But that's kind of the beauty of it. It can either be this fairly simple interface that, to be fair, actually adding media to it can be a little bit confusing for new users I've found that I've set it up for. But once you've got all that set up, it's really straightforward. Or if you want to get really hacky with it, you can. And you can do all sorts of stuff, including getting Netflix and Amazon working and your ROMs on emulators and everything. And first and foremost, Cody is the player that gives me the least screen tearing of any video player on Linux. So that's why I use it. <laughs> Everybody's got their Cody reason, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I say the least screen tearing. It's not perfect. It's Linux, you know. <laughs> got to get that X jab in there whenever you can. Uh, before we go all down the Linux hate hole here for a second, can I just say that Cody is a standout Android TV application and version 18 adds a couple of nice features that make it feel like a full-fledged Android TV application. I don't actually use this, but if you are a fan of Google Assistant on, say, like the NVIDIA Shield TV, Kodi now has full feature support for voice search and voice typing using the remote and all of that. It's, I mean, that's like a first-class app kind of thing on that ecosystem. It's, it's a big deal for a lot of people. It doesn't resonate with me, but it checks a box with the quote-unquote market. Well, hopefully they can ride this tide of positive publicity and get to a point where they're releasing early and often with new features and kind of put the negative publicity behind them. I agree. I hope, I really hope so, because Cody is one of these open source projects that makes a daily positive impact on my life. As we record this episode right now, I am en route from Texas to Washington, and many, many times en route, I don't have internet connectivity, and I use Kodi to stream media around my local land, and it is, after everything I have tried over the years, the absolute best application for the job. It would negatively impact my life if it went away, and it positively impacts my life when they have a new release. Just like so many other great open source projects, so much free software now positively impacts my life because I use it on a daily basis. And it probably impacts you out there too. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. So whenever something changes in the world of free software or open source, you find out about it right here on this humble show. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Also, just a quickie for those of you that are listening right around the publication date, February 5th, 2019, right after this week's episode of Linux Unplugged, we're holding an online study group for YAML, the basics of YAML, more details at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.